we've entered into an unprecedented era in United States history. And if you think that the rejection of Christian values that we have seen over the recent years by our government and our educators has been bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm no prophet, but I don't have to be to know that the biblical Christians are in trouble from this new administration. Americans willingly surrendered their rights, their freedom in this election, especially religious freedom guaranteed by the First Amendment of the Constitution. It has been rejected by this new government. Christian ministries that work against abortion that have already faced stiff stiff opposition will face even stiffer opposition. Conservative charities will be forced to either provide abortion insurance or be closed. Christian ministries and Christian business owners will either accept the indoctrination of the LGBTQ plus community or they'll be forced out of business. The president's advisors oppose homeschooling because homeschoolers get to choose their own curriculums, but not the propaganda that will be forced even more into the public school system. And those of you who have children in the public school system or in secular universities, watch as your children will either submit to the brainwashing or be threatened with expulsion if they speak against the policies and the politics of the ruling party. You may think that I'm exaggerating, but this administration has already signed those things that I just talked about into law. I don't say this so much to scare you. I say it to prepare you. Will your faith be able to withstand what is occurring and will occur over the next four years in this nation? It will if you have been studying the book of Romans with us. If you have been staying with us, studying and memorizing the scripture, your faith will be strong. Because the book of Romans has already prepared us for this. The book of Romans showed us the depths of human depravity. The depths of the hearts of men and women who suppress the knowledge of the truth and desire to live for themselves rather than for God's glory. Those people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ from you and from me. Paul wrote chapters 12 through 16 of the book of Romans before he knew the persecution that Nero was going to bring against the church. Persecution which was going to occur within about seven years from the time that he wrote. And yet he knew that some, including himself, had already faced the persecution that those who love God and obey God will face, as he told Timothy, if you want to live a godly life, if you want to live for God's glory in this world. What he said to the Roman church applies to you and to me today in the United States of America. Last week, Sean preached uh, from... Romans chapter 12, the final verses, 17 to 21. He preached how Christians should respond to the enemies, not with wrath, but with love. That we do not show vengeance, but rather we pour out blessings on our enemies. 
Two weeks ago, we heard God's call for submission even to evil governments to submit them in Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Today, we need to recognize from our theme for this passage that the mercy that you've received from God overflows in sacrificial love to others. The mercy that you've received from God should overflow from you out to others. When evil reigns, we want to hear anything but love. Tell us to fight. Tell us how to survive. Uh, tell us how to overcome. And we're happy. But there's love business. Well, that's kind of hard on us. Yet that's just what we have in our text this morning. Paul has commanded us at the end of chapter 12 to pray for and give blessings to our enemies. He's told us that those governing authorities have their authority from God, so we are to submit to them even when they tax you or when they misuse you. And submission and love, those are tough pills to swallow when you think about what he has talked about at the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, unless you notice first how God's mercy provides you with an expectation of a love debt. You have a love debt. That love debt comes because God has poured his love out on you. God has showered you with his mercy and with his love. And so you have a love debt. And he wants you to pay back, in a sense, that love debt out to others. God expects, he expects you to live in such a way that people will see in you what you have experienced from him. That's his expectation for you. Paul wants you to know that you must submit to even evil authorities with a love that's described for us in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. You see that? Owe no one anything except to love each other. Even now in the United States, or for that matter, any place in the world where the church is being persecuted, which is most of the world, submission and love are God's rule for us as believers. So notice how God expects you to live out your love debt. First of all is worship. You got that love debt that, that God has loved you and, and, and you're to pour out on others? Well, it starts by pouring it out in worship to God. It starts by us being so overwhelmed by what God has done for us that we can do nothing else except for express in praise and worship that He is great, that God is awesome. No matter what is going on in our life, God is still God. He is worthy of worship. You see, Romans 13 flows out of Romans 12, verse 1. There we read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God has given us, as Christians, special optics to see the world. These look familiar? Sure do you, Nick. All right? He's given us special optics to look at the world and see it in a different perspective. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Nick preached a sermon 
using these as an illustration of special optics that help us to see with a clearer worldview. Well, part of the optics that help us to see the world differently are the mercies of God. I appeal to you, I beseech you by the mercies of God. That's the foundation for everything that Paul has said so far in chapter 12 that he's going to say, continuing to say in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. It all flows out of that one thought. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Mercies that God has extended to you as an individual. And so as we look at the world, we see the world through the mercies that God has extended to us. And as you look with the mercy eyes, as you see the world from that perspective, how can you not worship God? How can you not praise Him? God expects you to show merciful love to others because of the mercy that He has already bestowed upon you. Jesus described that kind of mercy in the parable of the two debtors in in Luke chapter 7. In Luke 7, he said, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? The answer is pretty easy, isn't it? 500 versus 50. Yeah, the one that owes 500. Yeah, I think that individual is going to be much happier than the one that's 50. Okay, I mean, 50 is nice, but 500, that's a year and a half's worth of pay for the people of that day. Yeah, to love God and to be filled with thanksgiving and worship. My question is, which are you? When you view the mercies of God, do you view the mercies of God as if God forgave you 50 or the 500? That he canceled your debt? Is it just, well, yeah, it's great that God forgave my sins. Or is it, oh, God, praise you. I can't believe that you have loved me with such a love poured out on me such love that you would forgive all that I have ever said and all I've ever done against you. If God has shown you such great mercy, then how can you not show mercy to others? You may be tempted to become angry, bitter, despairing when people harm you. You can fight those temptations by remembering how evil your heart once was before God forgave you, before through his mercies that he extended to you, wiped out your past, canceled your debt through his son, Jesus Christ. Let your heart break forth in worship of a God that could be so loving, so merciful. God expects you to live out your love debt constantly in worship. But also, notice how God expects you to live out your love debt as a witness. When Paul wrote that we are to owe no one anything, he was referring back to verse 7, right? There's no break in Paul's original writing. We have a break in our English Bibles, but there was no break. Verse 7 flows right in to verse 8. And he had just told us that we were to pay what we owe in terms of taxes and revenue and respect and honor. When he says, owe no one, he's not prohibiting taking out a loan. Elsewhere, the scripture prohibits us from not paying back those loans, but it doesn't prohibit us from taking out loans. And if you want to know more about 
debts and indebtedness and, and those kinds of things, I highly uh, encourage you to go back to this week's devotionals and reread the devotional on debt, indebtedness, and, and those things. It was, it was excellently done, and I didn't do it. Paul is not addressing personal debt here. Verse 8 continues Paul's statements from verses 6 and 7. To pay taxes, to pay revenue, to pay respect, to pay honor to those who are due it because God has placed them in authority over you. And you can do so even with an evil government. If you know the mercies of God and you know the love debt that you owe to God for his great mercy that he's shown to you, then you can extend that out. See, if you think that God is just, eh, you know, I was an okay person, but God, you know, to get to heaven, I got to go through Jesus, so I accept Jesus as my Savior. If that's your view, then you don't think much about God's mercy. But if you've understood Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, if you have looked into the depths of your heart and you saw how far from God you were and how you had fought against Him without even knowing that that's what you were doing and that you were cursing Him without even knowing that you were cursing Him. When you see the depths of your sin that was so great that the eternal Son of God had to come into this world to die so that your sin could be forgiven, then you will understand mercy. And you'll extend that mercy to others. Paul wants us to pay forward from God, the mercies we receive, pay it forward to those who need to experience God's mercy for themselves through you. Jesus said in, in, in John 13, he said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, the way a Christian responds to a Christian brother or sister in Christ is one of the best tools that we have for witnessing in this world. If we truly live out the gospel and we love one another as Christ loved the church, we do that in our marriages, we do it in our relationship with our children, we do it in relationship to the body of Christ, our, our, our family, our church family. If, if we live out the gospel in that way, the world looks at that and says, boy, I wish I had that. I wish I experienced that kind of love. I wish I knew what it was to be part of a group that loves each other the way they love each other. And that's why I'm so distressed when I go online and I see the way Christians talk to other Christians online. And Christians argue with one another, debate with one another, call others names when they're online, right out in the public. That's horrible. It's tragic. That's no witness to the world around us. Now, when a Christian says or does something publicly that's wrong, we are called to publicly correct them. But we must do it in love and mercy, the scripture says, watching ourselves lest we ourselves should fall into some kind of a, a, a trap as well. And yet the love debt that you owe, as Nico prayed, is, is not reserved just for, for believers. Not just from believer to believer. We read in Romans 5 how God shows his love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to be part of his family before he forgave us. He didn't wait for us to be you know, cleaned up first before he accepted us. We were sinners. And the overflow of that love of God that he showed through the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf should be seen in how we love our neighbors, how we love the people who don't know Christ 
as well as those who do know Christ. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, you, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Your love becomes a powerful witness to the world around you when you respond out of a heart that's been transformed by the love of God and by the mercies of God. When you know the wonder of the mercy of what God has done in you and for you firsthand, and if you love the Christ who, who bought you with his precious blood, then you all know anything except love. God's mercy provides you with an expectation of a love debt that leads you to worship Him for His mercy and witness to the world through that love. But let's see how this works out practically because Paul leads us into that practical understanding of what he's talking about. Notice how Paul shows that God's mercy provokes you to an exercise of that love debt. He doesn't just say, you should be a loving person. He goes on to express how we can exercise that love, how we can use that love as we live in the world around us. The more that you meditate upon God's mercies, the more that you recognize who He is and what He has done, the richer will become your worship of God. And the richer your worship of God, the greater will be the expression of that as you reach out into the world around you. Worship provokes in you a passion, a passion to live a life that glorifies God in everything that you say, in everything that you do. A love towards believers and a love towards unbelievers. Consider the last line of verse 8 and verse 9. It says, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what he's given us here is just four out of the Ten Commandments. But by adding the phrase, and any other commandment, he all of a sudden went not just to the other Ten Commandments, but to all the commandments that we have in the Scriptures all of them from Genesis to Revelation. Everything. Jesus put it this way, in a sense. He said, all that God commands in the Scriptures, what is the greatest commandment? Remember? He was asked that. Jesus is, is, is stretching that out to all the Scriptures, and He says, what is the greatest commandment of all the Scriptures? The greatest commandment of all the Scriptures, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. God's love for us becomes our love for our neighbors. So notice how God expects you to live out your love debt as workmanship. No, not just as a worker, as workmanship. You see, we don't love our enemies in our own strength. We love our enemies because we are God's workmanship. God is at work in you. He is forming you and, and carving you into the sculpture. Remember seeing this a bit back as well? This is a, an eagle. Somebody that knew what they were doing. Workmanship carved this eagle. And God says that's what he is doing to you. 
that God is at work in you carving out, not an eagle, but, but carving out in you that life that reflects the image and the glory of God in Christ Jesus. To love God and to live for God. We can't do it on our own. We need God working it in us, carving us, even as this individual, whoever it was, carved out this little eagle. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we received spiritual life by the grace of God through faith. And then he tells us why. Why did God give you eternal life by his grace through faith? Verse 8 and 9, he tells us, say by, by grace, through faith, not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He tells us that. And then he goes on and he says, and here is why. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're not your own. Before the foundations of the world were set in place, God set his love on you. And then you were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Those that God has set his love on from eternity, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you received the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And that same power of that spirit at work in you to carve you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And all of that so that you can live like Jesus Christ in the midst of the world as you love your neighbor, as you yourself have been loved by God. God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to love your neighbor and your enemy, even as God has loved you and is at work in them. But also notice how God expects you to live out your love debt as well-being. Well-being. You see, every act of Christian love must be for the well-being of others. Not for your well-being, but for their well-being. In some cases, the well-being for one individual might conflict with the well-being of another individual. All we have to do is think about politics and we can see that if you support one person, you're not supporting the other person. So that happens in this life in which we live. But back in chapter 12, as, as God spoke through Paul, God commanded us to live at peace with everyone as much as it is within your control to do so. We can't cause other people to live at peace with us. We can't make other people, you know, let us live freely with our religious freedoms that are promised to us in the Constitution. We can't make them do that. And so when the Scripture says, as much as it is possible for you to do so, live at peace with others. People are going to hate you. They're going to choose to be your enemies because they are God's enemies. And because they hate God, they're going to hate you for being God's person in the midst of the world. As Jesus said, they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But you don't have to see them as enemies. And that's the key. They can see you as an enemy, but you don't have to see them as an enemy, and you don't have to treat them as an enemy, and that's why Paul follows this, these two sections about not taking vengeance and about submitting to the government, and he follows it with these commands, and he says, now, 
because of the mercies of God, love your neighbor as yourself. In Galatians, one of the harshest letters that we find in the whole of Scripture, the Apostle Paul wrote in chapter 6, the, the last chapter of Galatians, and he said, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I want you to put this in the context of what Paul is saying. Right? In chapter 1, Paul declared a curse, an anathema, on anyone who preached another gospel. In other words, he basically said to them, go to hell. If they preached another gospel, then the gospel that, that he had been preaching to them. In chapter 3, he calls the Galatians fools for having fallen for some of the teachings, the false teachings that were out there. And then he goes on in that, going even farther, and he says that I wish these false teachers that were teaching circumcision, that they would emasculate themselves, that they had slipped and emasculated themselves in their circumcision. Now that is harsh language. That's, that's tough words. So here in chapter 6, how can he say then do good to everyone after he just said those things in chapters 1 to 5. How do they go together? Well, let's think about some other events. Jesus stormed into the temple with a handmade whip to chase the crooks out of that temple. He grew angry at the scribes and the Pharisees, so angry at them because they didn't want him to heal on the Sabbath. He calls them hypocrites and whitewashed sepulchers. Paul cursed Elmas the sorcerer with blindness because he was hindering the spreading of the gospel. I bet you some of you wish you had that ability. <laughs> Either that or silence their tongue, right? Make them blind and mute so they can't speak. Peter described false teachers. He said they're like hot air bags that deserve the fires of hell. And one day, the God who is the God of love will cast millions, perhaps billions of people into hell. Love does not tolerate evil, but love does not respond to evil with evil. And that is what Paul is talking about. Because we love, we don't accept evil as normal. We don't just say, oh, well, that's the way it is. The Bible says that God does not look on evil. That doesn't mean he doesn't see evil. It means he does not look upon it with acceptance. And we as Christians should never look upon evil with acceptance. We stand for righteousness, for truth. But if we love our neighbor... We want to protect that neighbor from the wolves, don't we? We show mercy to those who do not know what they are doing or saying so that they might come to understand the gospel. And no matter how people treat us, we respond to them in ways that reveal the glory of God and not self-glory. We do not respond to people out of our own selfishness. That's how they would respond. Helping people see the glory of God is the greatest act of love. And sometimes it means taking a stand, but taking a stand in love. And so we see from this point that God's mercy provides you with an expectation of a love debt that shows you are God's workmanship as you serve your neighbor's well-being. And we do all of this because of the merciful love that God has shown us as he's melted our hearts through his own love for us. We love because he first loved. Therefore, notice that God's mercy pushes you to an examination 
of a love debt. You know, I've heard people say that love is not an emotion. Love is a verb. It is an action. But actually, love is both. It is an emotion and it is an action. But it is more than both of those. Love is a transformation. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is watch a Hallmark movie. I know, let's not go there. All right. But, for those of you who have never seen a Hallmark movie, you're not missing... (laughs) Sorry about that. Okay. Anyway, at the beginning of a Hallmark movie, there are two people that hate each other. They just cannot get along. I mean, they rub each other the wrong way. Everything is horrible and terrible. You know, they're constantly bumping into each other. And by the end of the movie, they're madly in love. That's quite a transformation. But Paul's talking about a deeper transformation than that. Paul is talking about us who were so self-focused, so self-centered, that all we could see in the world was with those self-focused eyes. And God has given us eye transplants. He's changed our vision so that we see differently. God has worked on us, carving us, carving out those self-centered focus of our life and changing it so that we see the world from God's perspective as those who are in Christ. And having done all of that, God has taken the heart of stone and changed it to a heart of flesh so that we can feel the hurt and the pain and the needs and the lives of others. We can care for them. Paul speaks here about a heart transformation. Look at verse 10. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does no wrong to the neighbor because, or therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. When we read these three verses, verses 8, 9, and 10, when we read them in light of all that has happened in 2020 and in January of 2021, You can examine whether or not your heart is a heart of stone or a heart of flesh. As you think back on what has happened in 2020 and this this first month of this year, you'll know whether your heart is a Christ-filled heart or not. How will you do that? Well, notice how God expects you to live out your love debt willingly. Let's think back over the past year. How you responded to your government, to the leaders of that government, toward the rioters this summer, or those who stormed the Capitol building on the 6th, or to the racial tensions. Think back, measure your words. Measure your feelings, measure your actions by what these verses are telling us, how we ought to have responded. Did you follow the example of Jesus that Peter says? He set the example for us that we know how we ought to react and respond in suffering. Did you act more like Peter or like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came to take Jesus. You know, commands are easy to keep when we love what we're doing. If we were serving ice cream today downstairs at the uh, congregational business meeting that will follow the service today, and the ice cream is laid out on the table and said, go get yourself some ice cream. I don't think you would look like 
What? He's telling me what to do. I've got to go eat ice cream now. Unless you're lactate you know, intolerant, maybe. But most of us would see how fast we could follow that command. And if a young lady is sitting on a porch swing and she says to the young man who's come to visit her, come over and sit down with me. I'm sure that young man is not going to look at her and go, what are you doing, telling me how to live my life already? I have a feeling that he would rush right over to sit down next to her. You see, when we, when, when we love doing things, commands aren't seen as commands, are they? And if we love God, and we through the eyes of mercy, see all that that God has done for us and know that his heart is a passion for us, then when he gives us a command, our response should be, wow, I get to do this with God in the midst of the world in which I live. In 1 John 4, verse 11, we read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Those who truly know the love of God have, should have no problems loving fellow Christians. If we see how God loves us, we see how he loves them, that should blend our hearts together. But what about loving your neighbor? What about loving that person who's not a Christian? Living in the world around you, whether it's a politician or a policeman, a property owner or a peddler, how do you respond? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Did you notice that everything that Paul says here in verses eight or verses nine and 10, that all of it is in the negative. These are, these are negative commands that he gives to us. The four commands that he pulls out of the Ten Commandments, those four commands are all negative commands. You shall not commit adultery, not murder, not steal, not covet. And then he sums it all up by saying, love does no wrong to the neighbor. So I want you to think practically about that. Love doesn't refuse to pay taxes. Why? Because their neighbor won't get a Social Security check if we don't pay taxes. Love wears a mask so as not to get the government mad at us. And then the government shuts down the business that you go to, but you won't wear a mask there. They shut down that business for not complying. Or maybe even shut down a church. Love doesn't wish harm on those who don't know Christ so that they'll have more time to know Christ. Love holds no grudges towards those who have harmed us. Why? Because God holds no grudges against you for the harm that you've done to him. Love doesn't gossip. And on can go the list. Item after item. Command after command. You don't treat those without Christ well because you're commanded to do so as a Christian. You do no harm to your neighbor because Christ's love and God's mercy is overflowing from you because you've been transformed by the mercies of God. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus identifies two total strangers as neighbors. And that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Who is our neighbor? 
Well, notice how God expects you to live out your love debt worldwide. The world is your neighbor. The person next door and the person in the next state, they're your neighbor. The governor of New York and the governor of Nepal, they're your neighbor. Your hair cutter and the tribal hair cutter in Uruguay, they're your neighbor. It doesn't matter. The Samaritan and the Jew brought together on a road where one had been beat up. Neighbors. The Christian who has learned to love the Lord of God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength will live out the second commandment that Jesus gave in Mark 12. Or, yeah, Mark 12. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest of all God's commandments, but not the hardest to live. We're often told it's, it's almost impossible to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, it certainly is difficult, but it's not impossible. Why isn't it impossible? Because God's the one who's loving us and loving through us back to him in worship and then out to our neighbor. As God has loved us, and the more we see that, the more we view the wonder of his eternal love through his mercy, the more our hearts will overflow in love to our neighbor. I want you to consider this truth. One day, Jesus Christ is going to return, and all who are God's children will join him for eternity in heaven. It's going to be wonderful, isn't it? But who are you going to be next to in heaven? Who are you going to be next to? You might be near people who are from the first century B.C. Or the 16th century A.D. Or if Christ waits for another hundred years, it could be somebody from the 22nd century. You don't know who's going to be next to you in heaven. You may have met them once, twice, or never met them at all. Or maybe they come from Kansas, or Kenya, or Korea. Or they might even come from Assyria, or perhaps from Amalek, or Apakshad. You don't know where they're going to come from. You don't know who they are. But you don't want to know something? You will love that individual who is next to you in heaven with a far greater love than you ever have experienced towards anyone here on earth. They're your neighbor. And you'll love them because God loved them. Because Christ died for them and purchased them. But when we're here on this earth, we don't know which one of them is going to be in heaven. We don't know who that neighbor is. All of you have been cursing our mayor or our governor. They might be the person that's next to you in heaven if God, out of his mercy, brings them to Christ. I was sharing, I think it was with Sean recently, the son of Sam. How many, how many people would have ever thought that the son of Sam, mass murderer, that he might be your neighbor in heaven? And yet, he's going to be somebody's neighbor in heaven. Because God saved him. And he saved him because some believer, whether under the old covenant of Jew, whether in the new covenant a believer in Jesus Christ so loved from the overflow of the mercies of God 
and to share the gospel with them. Just to share it with you. Let's reflect then on what we've just learned from these three verses. The mercy that they receive from God that allows them to be your neighbor in heaven, received from God, overflows in sacrificial love to others. And so is it too much to expect that those who have known the full wonder of what God has worked in us would pay forward their debt in worship and witness? Is it too much to believe the power of the gospel that changed your heart, the heart of stone and made it into a heart of flesh, that it might provoke you to exercise your love debt? Because of God's workmanship in your life, for the well-being of your neighbor. And I pray that the Spirit might indeed push you to examine your love debt, to see if you're willing to love your neighbor next door and worldwide. And so in conclusion, all I have is one question. Have the mercies of God motivated you to sacrificially Love your neighbor, love your fellow Christian, or love your enemies. Father, speak to us. We live in unprecedented times in the United States. Oh, the rest of the world has has experienced what we're beginning to experience. But we're not used to it so much. We're not used to overt persecution of the church. We're used to being able to take the Constitution and say, yeah, but the first, command, uh, the first amendment of the Constitution says religious freedom, so we should be able to be free. And we have seen that trampled, cast out as if it didn't exist. And it would be so easy to become bitter, to become angry, to see people as our enemies, to wish them harm, rather than to heap coals of fire on their heads by loving them out of the overflow of the mercies that God, you have shown to us. That we might owe no one nothing except to love each other because love is the fulfillment of the law. Teach us what that means. Open our eyes, change our vision, and change our heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand.